And that's currently everybody's state. Everybody has passwords. They're not going away anytime soon. But uh, I do believe that you should work on securing stuff for now as best as possible, but also to start move away from them. So I also think that MFA is a, everyone just kind of has to do that. Those, those are like table stakes for being an IT organization. You should do all this other stuff with your passwords, but the thing that everyone needs to do if you haven't done that already, everyone just stop right now and go get MFA. And if you can skip the password list, fine, but you gotta, you gotta have MFA and you will only need MFA if you're ever gonna allow password authentication, period. Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Duby. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to the HIP podcast. Today's episode is going to be a live recording from our 2020 HIP conference panel on hybrid AD security with special guest, 15-time MVP, Brian Desmond. To watch any of what you may have missed, head over to hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com, to watch it on demand. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm Sean Doobie, Director of Services for Semperis and host of the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast. Today's theme is about hybrid identity security, and all of our panelists are both extremely experienced in Microsoft-focused hybrid identity. We're all current or former MVPs with a total of 60 years status. It's brave. And we're all old friends, so abuse may definitely happen during the session. So for today, our speakers, our special guest today is uh, Brian Desmond, who is a principal at Ravenswood Technology Group, where he leads a team of professionals focusing on delivering best-in-breed consulting services for the Microsoft security and identity management ecosystem. He's a 16-year former MVP and is the author of the fourth and fifth editions of Active Directory from O'Reilly. I'd like to thank him for taking a break from putting up drywall in his new house to chat with us. <laughs> George Dalmeida Pinto is a lead identity and security consultant working for IAM Tech with a very strong focus on and passion about Microsoft identity, security, and access management technologies, either on-premises or cloud-based. And if you heard his talk today, he had tons and tons of information that he squeezed into his talk. George is celebrating his 15th year as an MS MVP. And finally, uh, last but not least, uh, Joe Kaplan is the architecture and strategy lead for Accenture's identity and access management organization within internal IT. He focuses on solving real world identity problems for a large complex business. And if you listen to Joe's talk about password lists, you would recognize that he probably doesn't get out of bed for less than 200,000 users or devices. <laughs> Joe is co-author of the .NET Developer's Guide to Directory Services Programming and is a former Microsoft MVP of 15 years status. So welcome, gentlemen. It's nice to see you again after uh, a, a number of months. Thank you. Thanks. 
So, um, Brian, uh, uh, yesterday our also fellow MVP colleague, Christopher Anderson, did a great talk on administrative tiering and privileged access workstations. I know that you've made deploying Red Forests and PAWS an important part of your service offering. And actually, you have some relation with Joe in this as well. Is it hard to is it as hard to implement as others uh, would have you believe? Is there is there a way to get started? What sort of basic steps would you suggest an organization take if they want to begin administrative peering or red forest or pause or how do you, how do you get started in such a thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily hard per se, but it is. There are a lot of steps and a lot of details, and depending on the size of your organization, that can uh, that can make things a lot more complicated or not. Um, it's also, you know, the old uh, the old saying: don't try to boil the ocean and fix it all at once, because uh, you'll 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 probably fail. Um, is uh, is the fact of the matter? You know, usually when we talk about hardening AD, we we kind of look at this maturity curve of different things you can do to um, address a couple things that you know most of these hardening things address either lateral movement risks, which is the, the idea that I compromise one device and now I need to hop from one to the next and to the next and so forth. So we want to prevent that so that we don't have a, an adversary being able to move move laterally, you know, from one PC to the next or one server to the next. Um, and then we also want to prevent privilege escalation. So if I compromise a PC, for example, I don't want to be able to have that person uh, be able to use that compromised workstation as a, a jumping point to then compromise a, uh, uh, a server and then even to the, the highest tier being able to compromise AD at which point you you own the whole thing. Um, so when we think about you know lateral movement prevention and preventing privilege escalation, you know all these different controls, um, you know pause privileged access workstations is one of them. Uh, this concept of tiering, which is preventing um, administrative credentials from touching each of those three different levels. So domain admin credentials should never touch a lower assurance. Uh, uh, asset like member servers or client computers, and likewise, uh, server admin credentials should never touch a lower assurance system like a like a client endpoint um, as the concept of tiering. But then also things like uh, implementing Microsoft's LAP solution to prevent lateral movement by randomizing local admin passwords on on each endpoint and on each member server is another one. Um, another one that we look at is, are there agents that are running, especially on domain controllers, that provide equivalency to domain admin? So anything that runs as a local system on a domain controller or a tier zero system that can run code, you know, uh, config manager agents, log collection agents, monitoring agents, those sorts of things are really good examples, can be used to, to escalate privileges if someone can get control of the console that, that manages those. Mm. Um, so those things like laps, um, managing agents, putting tiering in, or even things that we talk about doing before we look at things like pause or just-in-time access or uh, or an admin forest or red forest. Yeah, that's, you know, there's an interesting little fact. I, I'm, I'm a pursuer of trivia around the NotPetya Maersk attack. And uh, what happened that, that caused NotPetya to make it into the Maersk network is that they had uh, a workstation in the Odessa office of Ukraine that had tax software on it, and the NotPetya got downloaded from the for the tax software's update servers. And three days beforehand, an administrator, somebody in a higher tier, had logged onto that workstation. And so NotPetya used Eternal Blue and and Mimikatz or whatever to harvest the credentials, and then spread across the network from there. So, 
Yep, those are uh, those are both things. So that's the concept of privilege escalation there, where I compromise that workstation and now I can harvest credentials to access a higher tier. Um, when you implement tiered controls, you would never have a scenario where a server admin or a domain admin can log into a workstation or or put credentials there. Um, and then the the other thing there, which is uh, especially when we talk about causes supply chain risk all the different places that you get things, whether they're packages you download or the actual hardware itself, uh, the software that you run on it and so forth, if that's compromised upstream and then then you get that into your environment, then you bring that, that compromise along with it. And there's there's been a lot of examples of that over the years. So it sounds like there are, one of the complexities of implementing a tiered model is that there are, you have to examine every vector and work your way back up the supply chain of every vector to to prevent infection. Certainly, when we do privileged access workstations, understanding that supply chain and the concept of a clean source, where you know the paw is a clean keyboard, so we know that it hasn't been compromised and it's being used to to manage high risk assets. But how do we know that it's not compromised? And that really starts from when you break the seal on the the hardware when it comes from the OEM, and then it goes all the way through the provisioning cycle and everything that's installed on it. What about virtual pause? Is that a thing? A thing probably worth mentioning here is that we actually hired a brand company a couple of years ago to help us out with the design for our PAW platform that we're still actually working on deploying today. Uh, we took a massive hit from uh, COVID with our deployment model, which was very in-office centric in terms of how we're going to build those and um, did not have an answer when uh, we didn't have offices anymore. But uh, but the, the platform that we were uh, we were building on was basically using the workstation as uh, essentially like a VM host and hosting both like what we call a productivity workstation and a privilege access workstation as uh, virtual machines and using guarded fabric technology to ensure that right. the um, that the actual admin VM is clean and free of compromise, even if there actually is a compromise in the productivity VM. And so you can definitely do this. And then you can potentially, if you need additional um, admin VMs, you can kind of scale that out as just different VM images and whatnot. This is vastly more complicated than just having a dedicated hardware device, but it's potentially better in terms of providing a, a user experience for the administrator who may have to carry two laptops. Then is it three laptops? Is it five? Like, do you have this stack of laptops that you have to carry around um, to get to a whole bunch of different environments? Um, so that's one of the things that we were thinking about when we attempted to tackle this. So definitely a lot more complicated, but definitely possible. Um, one of the questions that we always get asked as well, too, is, well, why don't you just use like um, VDI and jump post for this? And one of the things that Brian mentioned that's really key to this that I think should actually be very easy for people to get, but that people still kind of struggle with, um, in my experience, is this notion of clean source, which is clean keyboard. Um, in a VDI environment where you're just using like a normal productivity workstation, you can't really guarantee is free of compromise and still have it be useful to an end user to do things like email. You don't really have that guarantee of the clean keyboard. And so trying to get people to understand the clean source principle and clean all the way back to uh, the hardware is an important part of justifying why privileged access workstations are actually useful and a different solution than doing like uh, jump post <coughs> BDI bastion types of things where you just don't have that guarantee that you're clean all the way through. 
Um, but yeah, so virtualization is an option, but it's important to always pivot back to the clean source principle in these discussions when, if you really want to ensure that you have properly secured the administrative experience. Where are you running your virtual pause on then? So the virtual pause are actually running on a pretty souped up laptop that we uh, hand out. We have a basically a host OS that's doing nothing then uh, more than just running the virtualization software. And we actually manage that in a separate environment. Let's say pure modern management, separate Azure AD environment, and it's all our high risk environment that we manage that that's all completely separated from the corporate network. So not exactly a red forest, but it's also like a pure cloud play in terms of the hosting model for that. And then is the, I assume that the host on the hardware itself <laughs> is also highly secured. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. That, it's very locked down. It does very little. And then that's where all the guarded fabric stuff is, is actually running. So there's like a host guardian service that runs in the cloud. That's doing the attestation of the, uh, the running that the VM for the, uh, for the admin VM and whatnot. So pretty fancy, very complicated, not cheap and not easy to maintain, but we think it was the right investment for us to make. Um, I would definitely recommend that, uh, if people who are looking for advice in this space go to someone who has some expertise. I know that Brian's uh, company has like done a couple of different generations of this technology and has some newer, more simplified uh, offerings and um, has some have some solutions to these things that probably would have gotten around some of our problems with having to to build these things in office connected to our corporate network, which ended up like causing us to basically take like a nine month delay that we still haven't found our way out of yet. Um, in terms of how to move forward. So get, getting someone with some expertise in this space is incredibly helpful and will be worth your money. Um, not to put too much of a plug in for Brian, but he, his guys are really good at this. Yeah, and I was gonna say, uh, it's, most of the time now we do these with like a full modern management stack where they're not even domain joined anymore, but they're run out of a kind of a separate Azure AD tenant, which you can think of as like a you know a red cloud or a red tenant or something mm -hmm. um, and manage that with autopilot with Intune. Uh, and Defender ATP, so it gives you this kind of disconnected uh, modern provisioning model. Um, and especially for organizations that have geo-distributed support, you know, across time zones and such, it, it solves a lot of the provisioning problems that, uh, you know, I think Joe's alluding to, especially now where the concept of, oh, I'll just come into the office and, and get a new one doesn't really work. Well, so we have a, a new term. You take two existing terms and you put the two together. I always described it as puzzle pieces and it makes you go, hmm. So what we now have is red cloud or red tenant. So we have a question from the audience. What do you think about a blue or a prod forest, a red and put color in here for network access from device? Someone's going to have to translate that from out of Jimmy. <laughs> Basically one has from account, but another for using another forest for network connection to the assets. I think if I follow that, I mean, the whole idea with the concept of an admin, we, you know, Red Forest is the name that gets thrown a lot, around a lot. We usually call it a tier zero forest or an admin forest, depending on what it's uh, being used for. But the whole idea is that you isolate these high, high risk, high privileged credentials, you know, and concept of a Red Forest or a tier zero one is, is domain admin credentials. And part of the thinking there is that your production forest is compromised. You might not even know it, but the cost to exit that and build a new one uh, is, an, is enormous. So, um, you know, if, if you isolate those handful of admin accounts that you have into something that's, uh, that's, that's locked down and, and hardened, that's a much lower uh, spend, a much easier lift than trying to start from scratch with you know, an AD environment that, you know, maybe you've had for 20 plus years. 
Well, certainly the concept, the word bastion for a bastion force makes sense because it's it's almost as if you're retreating. Uh, you're retreating behind the walls of someplace you can trust. So, Joe, you did a great talk about taking Accenture Passwordless, or rather the journey towards taking Accenture Passwordless. It's quite a thing. So, I mean, what sort of basic steps would you say an organization should take to get started on a journey towards going passwordless? Is there, are there easy, you know, I think the days of being able to say, we have this monstrous project and we'll actually start to see returns five years out, keep throwing money at us, you know, is really hard to do. Whereas something where you can continue to have a series of wins to show that it helps, uh, how, would you, how would you do such a thing? So the first thing I think is important to um, to understand is that a journey to passwordless is probably going to be passwords plus passwordless for some period of time. And being able to set user expectations around that is really important. Um, the actual exit ramp to passwords isn't really there yet from my perspective. Um, so essentially what you're probably looking at is deploying what uh, Microsoft refers to in their documentation as password replacement alternatives. And so the thing that I would, I would suggest first is to look at the various technologies that exist out there, like in the Azure AD Microsoft technology landscape, there's really kind of three pieces. You've got Hello for Business, which is great built into Windows 10 if you're already using Windows 10. It's definitely worth a look, uh, especially because it integrates really effectively with on-prem Active Directory and gives you both your Kerberos auth and your um, and your Azure AD auth in this pretty seamless way. Um, it's doable. It's actually probably lower hanging fruit than a lot of people think. Mm -hmm. um, you figuring out where FIDO needs to fit into your uh, your solution is also important. Um, you may wish to use FIDO for everything just because you like it better or you want to be able to um, to roam around, you want more uh, cross-platform support. Um, and, you know, it's, it's maybe worth pointing out that Hello for Business is actually uh, part of FIDO. It, it, it integrates into uh, the uh, FIDO infrastructure itself. But, but you may wish to go with FIDO-based hardware tokens. That's going to be a lot more expensive. You're going to have to figure out how you're going to get them to people and exactly how you're going to use them. But you might get a lot more cross-platform usability with them. Um, Authenticator device authentication is really, really simple and cheap and easy to do. You can get a lot of swing with that for, at least for your Azure AD based stuff, uh, very, very quickly. Um, it's cheap and it's easy. The problems that we ran into with all of our line of business applications and the backwards compat issues are likely to not affect very many people. Like for example, one of our subsidiary organizations, Avanade, actually deployed this broadly to their entire user base. Uh, they have many fewer line of business applications and that blocker for them, that wasn't a problem. Like they're just like, oh yeah, we had some weird issue with one app and we fixed it and boom, they were off and running. So they were able to make a lot of very quick progress by uh, by using that. And uh, the, the, the main thing there to understand is that it doesn't necessarily give you the same level of integration with your on-prem legacy auth that, uh, that you get with the other technologies. Mm. Um, but I do think it's all worthwhile to do, like I said in my talk, and trying to pick a pivot point that you want to move off of first is uh, is is the right thing to do. And that's probably going to depend a lot on your users and your device mix. But um, I think Hello for Business is probably going to be the sweet spot for a lot of the people in the audience here today. 
Right, because these are all Windows 10 devices that you can have either mm -hmm. hybrid joined or Azure AD joined. Right. And, and certainly it seems like, and you 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 know, you guys are boots on the ground, is the, the disconnect. People are still, it's it's hard to unlearn the the feeling of I need to be banged on the head with MFA all the time. Mm -hmm. Even though you're actually being secondarily authenticated. Um, I think it was Daniel Stefaniak that said, uh, just because you aren't getting challenged doesn't mean we're not secondary, we're not MFAing you, so. Yep. Yeah, that, that the really nice single sign-on experience that you get with Windows Integrated Authentication when you log into the desktop that you get with Hello for Business that extends to both your on-prem stuff and the cloud is incredibly useful. And uh, people, even just like the, the additional usability thing, even if you don't have bio and uh, people are still typing in a PIN, a PIN is generally in an org going to be easier to deal with than a password. Um, so people will enjoy that from a usability perspective, especially if you make your pins like reasonably short and uh, don't require people to use alphanumeric and don't require them to change them all the time. Um, if you can get those usability things right and get that past all the people who have security issues, then uh, I think you can get a really nice usability bump by, by doing that. But I guess the other thing that it's important to point out is you're probably not going to just do one thing. Like we have Windows and we have mobile, like almost everyone has both, right? If anyone who has any of their corporate services on their mobile device is going to need something that works there. And I think device authentication uh, with authenticators probably more the sweet spot there than FIDO. FIDO feels like kind of awkward to use with a mobile device. Like you're going to plug in the, um, right. the USB token, like, that will probably work, but I see I, it seems less likely that people will do that. So um, device authentication seems more more of a sweet spot, and it's also generally more aligned to the apps that you're probably going to be running on the mobile device to begin with. Right, and I think you know in your talk you were pointing out because I think a lot of people are not really familiar what's happening under the covers with Hello for Business and how it is actually multi-factor authentication. It's not like you know, it's not like um, a gas card pin or something like that. I'll say that. I mean, you've got, you have one of your factors is the device, which is, which is, you know, the secure and in your possession. And the other is the pin, which is, uh, which is also used and is stored in the, the hash is stored in the TPM. The private key is stored in the TPM. So you're guaranteed that if you do a device unlock, then you, you've already done the second factor. Yeah. A lot of users, they go, well, where's my password or why am I getting my, my password or why am I getting MFA? It's like, well, you just did. So for the technologists in the audience, um, one of the things that is probably interesting to point out, I, I kind of alluded to this in my talk without getting to this level of detail, but um, uh, Hello for Business, when you use the certs model, is smart card authentication. Like it is fully smart card authentication in terms of how Azure or, uh, how Active Directory sees it. It's uh, like the cert templates you have are actually set for smart card auth, and um, it and it actually has all the same protections that you have with smart card auth, and that it's bound to a hardware device, especially if you're requiring TPM for uh, for the enrollment. Um, other than the fact that you don't uh, have an actual physical smart card that you drag around, it is 100% smart card auth, and it is. Like in my mind, one of the only practical way to actually do a smart card deployment to a large group of people that's even possible. 
Also, maybe worth knowing, some people may care about this, uh, Windows has supported virtual smart cards for a long time, but <clears throat> the plan is to actually pivot that support to uh, being a hello for business use case instead and uh, for uh, the actual virtual smart card support in Windows to eventually go away. So people who are interested in this from the aspect of smart cards probably want to be thinking about hello for business just in general anyway, because that's how smart cards are going to work in the future. The form factor that like always interests me and it's always this like kind of toxic discussion is like the people that make the door badges and like every office building hid also make a, a 502 version of their uh, the, the door badge. So it's got your picture on it, opens the door. And if you've got a sensor on your machine, it, it does the 502 auth. And so now it's just like everybody's already carrying one thing around, or at least they were before uh, before COVID. Like, why not use that same thing? um as the the pastureless token too but inevitably the the thought of like rebadging thousands mm -hmm. or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people is like really scary um and then like oh what if we have to upgrade the sensors by the doors or something because the car uses a newer frequency all those sorts of things turn into this big discussion <laughs> but like rather than like people start feeling like the janitor because they're carrying around all these tokens on their uh on their key ring uh mm -hmm. just just upgrade the one thing that they've got mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, George, uh, our, our pal Jimmy has a question on here about uh, what are, what are what is the panel's thoughts about the NIST recommendations on passwords and password policies. Uh, he he personally likes it if he has to use passwords. I wonder if you have any opinion on you know the recommendation that certainly that Microsoft and also in the U.S. that NIST has made uh, as far as updating password policies from what they have been kept at for so many years as such closely guarded, you know, yeah. premise that we do. Well, I don't recall from the top of my head what all those uh, NIST recommendations are, but um, one of the things that I do remember is that um, they, they, they talk about lengthy, lengthier passwords. Um, uh, also, um, depends on who you talk to. Some people say, well, you stop, you should stop, um, changing passwords frequently, for example, every 90 days, or I think Joe said even even 75 days. Uh, I think Microsoft is going 360 days, something like that. It depends on who you talk to. Um, well, I, um, before starting with the project regarding the account hygiene, I already had an opinion regarding the, uh, the, the whole password thing. But when um, while, while working on the whole account hygiene stuff, um, I, it, I realized even more that the whole password thing, it's, and sorry to say it like that, it's a serious freaking nightmare. Um, because technical people uh, like us, uh, well, we can easily learn stuff uh, and, and how password vault uh, works. And for example, all my passwords are in there at least 30 characters long and well, go ahead with it uh, if you wanna crack it. And of course, nothing is impossible. It just takes more time. But if you think about it from a user perspective, the really simple user, um, and, I, and, and, and it may be funny to say it like this, but when I think about it, I, for example, think about people like, for example, my mother-in-law. Um, she's a great person, but when it comes to technology and passwords and all that stuff, they hate it. They seriously hate it. So regarding uh, the length of passwords, how long is a piece of string? Today, it might be eight characters. Next year, it's nine, then it's 10. So how far does it go? 
Um, also regarding the, the, the have I been pawned uh, stuff that I talked about to, to check the password uh, uh, compromise against to see if it's compromised or not. Um, a compromised password, um, well, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a weak password. It can be a seriously strong password, but it's compromised because it, uh, it, uh, it was known during an attack or whatever due from whatever SAS system. Yeah. And, uh, and people may have used, just used it somewhere. So the whole password thing, um, and that's currently everybody's state. Everybody has passwords. They're not going away anytime soon. But uh, I do believe that you should work on securing stuff for now as best as possible, but also to start move away from them, um, especially for personal accounts. Think about uh, user admin, maybe even for those scenarios where think about a reception. Let's say that if we all, uh, all four of us worked at a reception and had one account, the reception account, we would probably be sharing a, a password. How do you deal with those scenarios? Um, uh, the whole password thing, it is seriously very difficult. And, and I truly believe that it's to strengthen it, it will only get worse and worse and worse. And with that in mind, I would say um, start planning on maybe on short, short term going to MFA and also think about uh, uh, going passwordless. Mm -hmm. now, certainly, you know, my soapbox for the last couple of years has been... You know, so the NIST recommendations to summarize for the audience, the some of the key NIST recommendations are to don't set password expiration, to not have password uh, complexity rules. Mm -hmm. um, what am I missing? Uh, restrictions on password length. Um, so you should also, um, you should uh, definitely, you're supposed to be verifying that uh, uh, previously compromised credentials are not in use and that you should also be actively looking for signs of a compromised uh, credential in your environment and pursuing those instead yeah. of requiring people to change passwords. So like yeah. the, those are two of the big, big things in there is are preventing the use of, of known compromised passwords and, and uh, having some sort of an active mechanism for, um, for yeah. detecting compromised credentials in your environment and then um, having uh, remediations in place to uh, uh, to drive that, which, you know, stuff that's actually pretty well supported in the um, uh, in the Azure AD stack now, not to give it too much of a plug, but identity protection actually can mm -hmm. do a great job of that between leak credentials report, yeah. user at risk, setting a sign-in risk policy and a user risk policy. You can force the person to change the password as soon as that's detected by the platform. There's a lot more you you can and should do, but it literally actually just does all those things for you automatically. I, I think it deserves a fair bit of credit um, for uh, for having actually given people a turnkey system to get some of those controls in place uh, without only having to click a few mouse buttons. One other aspect that's really important, though, before you just you know turn off all of, all of your existing protections, though, that is, in my mind, is a prerequisite is the common password checker, you know, which in, uh, you know, whether whether or not you have a way of comparing the your password hashes to the have I been owned, have I been mm -hmm. owned, like, like George was talking about, or whether you implement Azure AD password protection to look against a common password list, the number of the compromised credential attacks that just come from guessing common passwords is huge. I think I actually even have mm -hmm. it like 
36% or something like that of the, the ones they're just, they just go out and they use these botnets like the trick bot. They've got a million computers and mm -hmm. they have a distributed password spray program that against all of these computers from different IP addresses, they're just, tr they're just trying the same common passwords and it's a very successful attack. Yep. yep. So yeah, we use password protection internally and we actually layer that with uh, Anixis password po policy enforcer. So we run both. Um, I don't know if people knew that you could do that, but we do. There's some specific reasons that we have around that. And yeah, I had a stat on my little eye chart at the beginning, like 65,000 rejections of stuff that yeah. were is being caught by password protection every, every month for Accenture. Um, mm. The problem with that is usability, like the user experience in Windows of having that, that rejected is pretty poor, yeah. um, uh, which gets to trying to move to that NIST guideline of trying to like give people a good password that's that's not compromised and then don't make them change it very often because it's really only a problem if you make them change it that um, that they have a hard time picking a, another one. And when they're not getting that feedback that um, this password is, seems fine, except that it was already in a password dump, um, but they don't really know that that was the reason it was rejected for your organization's complexity rules, whatever, whatever that user experience is in Windows, that's not, that's not great. So um, yeah, to that end, I definitely think those kinds of things are, um, are re required. Um, to the question earlier though, I also think that MFA is a, um, everyone just kind of has to do that. Those, those are like table stakes for being an IT organization. Um, I, I think everyone needs MFA everywhere, no matter what else you're doing with your passwords. Like you should do all this other stuff with your passwords, but um, the very, uh, that that is like the thing that everyone needs to do if you haven't done that already. Everyone just stop right now and go get MFA. Um, and if you can skip to password list, fine, but you gotta, you gotta have MFA and you will almost well, certainly need MFA if you're ever gonna allow password authentication, period. Well, although I do agree that the whole MFA step is an important one, I also have the same experience as you had. You guys have a very a huge company and, and you don't issue phones, uh, at least co mm -hmm. company-owned phones. Yep. So um, you, uh, you have many people that don't care. They use their own phone and mm -hmm. they use the MFA because they uh, have some benefit of quickly signing in or whatever. But mm -hmm. there are people unfortunately that that have a, a certain mindset and like well no this is my personal phone uh and this is my company stuff and i'm not going to mix mm -hmm. them up together so easily saying you need to go mfa and a lot of the stuff um uh, depends on um um uh, the mobile uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh devices today companies are not gonna issue phones because you'll be, uh, it will cost you at least a few hundred bucks for every phone. Another option would be, okay, uh, and not just a plug, but it's just one of the vendors that I know of. For example, how about RSA tokens? Mm. Uh, all that stuff to at least provide uh, um, uh, MFA. But it's not always easy to say MFA. And um, I don't know what you guys uh, have as, ex as an experience because Passwords are bad, but uh, from a security perspective, MFA is okay. It's good, mm -hmm. but still, I think people hate it. The yeah. continuous being, uh, the continuously being prompted for, oh, can you please enter your code or notifications or whatever? <coughs> uh, they hate it. Sure. So, no, and, I, and, I agree. And, and I've been using for quite a few months. Uh, 
um, a, um, a um, security key on my laptop. Seriously, I love it. It's a, a touch of a finger. I can log on to my PC. I can log on to websites, whatever. It works so good. And, and, and the, the, I have a few MFA prompts still, but mm -hmm. it's less and less than before. I think that the user experience, if you're, and as I've said before, it, this is an age where we live in ecosystems. And if you live entirely within an ecosystem, everything is a little bit easier than if you have a heterogeneous environment. But we all have heterogeneous environments. So that said, if you're inside the Microsoft ecosystem, you've got, you're using Windows 10 and their Azure AD joined, and you're using Azure MFA and the Authenticator app and all that, I think the experience is actually much better than the end user expects it will be. I had mm -hmm. to, in my own little micro, micro, micro comparison, you know, and compared to Joe, uh, is end users were like, no, no, I don't want it. And then when I showed them how light a touch uh, MFA is when you've got an Azure AD joined device, and if you use Authenticator, which is just the tap of the screen, even you know, even our salespeople and all the tech, the people that are <coughs> tech averse, don't mind it. But mm -hmm. it's all of those where you don't quite, where it doesn't quite fit in that, where the the challenge amount goes way up, that it becomes much more challenging. So mm -hmm. Well, you just mentioned it's a tap of a um, of a finger on the screen regarding MFA. But one of the other things that's also um, um, I don't know if it's becoming a nightmare or it's becoming a bit difficult, but it's which type of, uh, sorry, which Authenticator app are you going to use? We are currently all focusing on the Microsoft Authenticator app, but people mm -hmm. can basically install anything. Mm -hmm. Google, Simontech, I don't care. As long as it's an Authenticator app, it's um, it's installable and you, and you can configure it. How many, how many, I may ask a poll, how many, and maybe this is a good thing for the questions, how many of you have, more than one authenticator app installed on your mobile device, and how many do you have? Well, my, for my personal view, I have one authenticator app. Um, I had in the in the past, I had Google just for testing, but I'm currently only using the Microsoft one, and I think I have around maybe let's say eighty bit uh, between eighty and one hundred accounts in there. Wow! Wow! And that's personal. That's uh, work admin. Uh, test accounts, you name it. I love the backup and restore stuff when, for example, you change phones or lose phones or whatever. Um, the only nightmare in there is when you restore a phone. Uh, sorry, you restore the Authenticator app. And um, um, <clears throat> for every Microsoft account, you just need to retap it and, uh, uh, and that's fine. But if it's Azure AD, you have to go through all those uh, um, uh, re-registrations again to scan everything. And that is a serious pain. Uh, Brian, do you have you done any MFA deployments <coughs> for companies? Do you run into um, maybe it's not as much of a problem in the states as it is overseas, where where your target audience does not necessarily have smartphones, or the or it, it gets ends up falling down to like SMS or hardware tokens or oath tokens or anything like that? Yeah, I mean the question comes up pretty much every time and uh, pretty much every time, like after a lot of going round and round in circles, everybody gets over it uh, is my experience. Um, and, and Joe might have some opinion, you know, working in a global organization that's dealt with this too. But uh, a lot of the times the it just comes down to, well, if you want to access resources, uh, then you, this is how it works or you can just access it in the office or on your company device and that's fine mm -hmm. too. 
Um, we deal with like fobs and hardware tokens a lot, especially with like manufacturing customers and right. scenarios where you can't have a smartphone on a floor either because it's process control you know, it's not allowed or yeah. there's potential safety issues, there's IP loss issues, that sort of thing. So those are scenarios where we, you know, issue hard tokens. Um, frankly, they're an administrative nightmare. Anybody that's ever, you know, ran an RSA deployment back in the day uh, knows how that how that goes. So we try to steer people towards using them only when they need to and offering that as an out, so to speak, for people that don't want to use their phone, just, just compound that administrative nightmare. So I think we see most of our customers just, uh, you know, th this is how it is and they, they move on with it. Basically all that, I would say, um, we, so we, we've been using semantics, uh, uh, uh VIP platform for a really long time. It's been great for us. One of the things that we have used with it is this uh, thing called the device registration plugin, which is a piece of software that you can install on a device. And once you MFA with that initially, what it will do is it will actually, during the login flow, generate an OTP code for you based on um, some uh, notion that you've already, like previously um, vetted this particular device. It's a little bit like, um, Azure AD uh, device registration, but different in that it's like uh, specifically doing MFA stuff. As we move off of that, we're going to lose that. That was actually one of the big justifications for us going for Hello for Business. But we also still do a lot of SMS. We do a fair bit of uh, phone call based um, uh, OTP. People receive a, a voice call and have to type something in. We also have a bunch of environments in our uh, in our company that are using hardware tokens. We actually had to go and buy hardware tokens for the semantic platform a while ago. And it's kind of in the round off error number of people, but it's still thousands. So um, not not tiny, but yeah, there, there are a number of, uh, of businesses that we support within our company where people are not allowed to have a phone. They can't receive a phone call. They can't run a software agent on the workstation. Um, they're not allowed to do any of those things. And it may they may actually not even be using a workstation that's uh, actually managed by us. It might be like a client workstation because it's a, a client deal that we have. So um, in some of those cases, you have to go back to hardware. We expect that we will probably replace those use cases with FIDO um, in the future. And we'll have to deal with all that stuff related to um, hardware. But if they can't do anything else, they're almost MFA proof and it becomes real difficult. Um, I will make another plug in here, which is that if you are doing um, uh, device registration of your uh, your corporate devices uh, in the conditional access space, you can get a lot of additional security out of using the conditional access control uh, requiring hybrid joint or compliant device. Um, that's a great way to take advantage of the fact that you've already registered a bunch of your devices and get a whole bunch of additional security by ensuring that the uh, authentication came from your device and not uh, some random device on, on the internet. And it, a lot of that is kind of in place and for free if you bought P1 or one of the other accompanying suites in uh, in. Uh, in the you know in the in the Microsoft identity space, so it's a it's a good and useful thing for securing your cloud resources and getting some assurance that it's your device that's being used as opposed to random stuff. How do you handle that? How do you handle it for your your very tiny little slice of thirty thousand Mac devices? How do you um, Intune you know, and Jeff? 
So yeah, Intune and Jamf is required, and it, and it all just works once you once you commit to that. So they they show up in Azure AD as devices that are registered and compliant with Intune, and so they check the compliant device um, policy and just works, and they get to all their O365 stuff and all of their things, um, and uh, that has been pretty successful with us. By the way, there was another device related question. If somebody wanted to take a swing at that related to uh, mobile. I can I can say what we do. I, I'd be really curious to hear what uh, uh, what Brian and, and George are doing there. So Android for work is a no. We're we're switching to MAM for all of our Android stack stuff. Let's, let's repeat the question oh, because yeah. the audience can't see the question. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Sorry. So do you see deployments of Android for work profiles? What do you suggest for uh, separation of work and personal on iPhones? So. We are generally switching to MAM for everything in our environment. Um, we're kind of being, we feel like we're being forced to in the Android space. We still do a lot of MDM for iPhone. And what we've generally asked people to do is allow us to MDM manage their personal device if they want to have access to corporate resources, really? which they have frequently submitted to. So yeah, that's, that is what we do. Um, but uh, we, we've, our experience is that the MAM technology is actually quite good and uh, and we're generally happy with uh, with that as the answer. And it seems to make a lot of a lot more sense for for personally owned devices. Um, I'm using MAM every day on my Android device. I'm an Android guy, and um, I find it somewhat annoying doing individual app logins frequently. Um, like it was a it was a more usable experience on on MDM, but uh, but it's not it's not so bad. And I, I like the fact that. Uh, um, I, my my device won't be remote wiped by um, by the corporate police, even if that's something that I could have I would have been making the decision about to begin with. Um, uh, but uh, so yeah, ma'am, ma'am, good. And we, for whatever reason, our guys all rejected and, uh, Android for work as being not usable or something we wanted to mess with. Um, so thoughts from uh, from the others? Yeah, I mean, I think we see. Well, I'd say if you put the company portal app on your phone, Joe, and you don't uh, enroll it, it'll actually be the auth broker for all the apps. You only have to sign in once. That's not been my experience with ma'am, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe mine's not working correctly. Uh, yeah, neither here <laughs> nor there. Uh, uh, yeah, well, th that's what I know regarding Android, the the, the the company portal being the broker for for iPhone. It's the, uh, the authenticator app. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, but yeah, and then again, I'm the iPhone guy, and I love it. So, no experience with the Android stuff. Yeah, right. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of Android for work outside of specific use cases, especially where they're and the, there's all these flavors like Android Enterprise and Android for work. And I don't think I could articulate all the different ones, but scenarios where you have like corporate owned and managed devices that comes up more, I think. Um, uh, I think we've seen the pendulum kind of swing both ways. Originally, it was everybody wanted to MDM enroll all their devices. Then it became doing MAM. Uh, and now we've seen some of that pendulum swinging back towards MDM uh, with some of our customers, hmm. um, which has been interesting. Um, my general approach is to just do MAM, which is, you know, if people don't know that, that's uh, what Microsoft calls mobile app management and their app protection policies, yeah. which essentially lets you create this kind of garden of apps that run on a device, and you can only share data between apps that are allowed. So on the corporate side, Outlook works. PowerPoint, et cetera. You can move files and attachments, emails, et cetera, around, but then you can't hit save as and drop that in your Google Drive. But then if you've got your personal email and Outlook, or maybe you open a Word document that got sent to your Gmail, that's on the personal side. You can do whatever you want with it. Um, and, and that, like Joe said, it works really well. 
Um, the the other way we've done this before is said, well, you can choose from both. The carrot, if you will, if you go the MDM route as well, we won't MFA you because you're coming from a compliant device after you enroll. So anytime you access corporate stuff on your personal phone, you don't get bothered as much. For some people, that's uh, they'd rather that than getting prompted all the time. Other people would rather get prompted more for MFA and know that they, they own their device 100%. So why are companies, because you, you mentioned, uh, okay, they started with uh, MDM, <clears throat> they moved to MAM, and some of them are, uh, are moving back to MDM. So what's the reason for that? Because it sounds like the, uh, the MAM part is making users a bit more happier uh, due to all kinds of personal controls, etc. But why going back for MDM then? Um, I know we've definitely seen some where people want to use that compliant device control to make sure that you're only coming from a fully managed device to access okay. other apps. So it's uh, it's easy to put controls on the native Microsoft workloads, you know, Exchange, SharePoint, et cetera, that tie in with MAM. But as soon as you're talking about your HR system or your CRM or whatever you've bought from insert vendor here, a lot of that that just doesn't exist. So, you know, how do we make that, that story better? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let me, let me ask a question, well, for probably for Brian and George and uh, where, you know, in your work, you're working out with customers all the time. Active Directory has been around for 20 years. <clears throat> Come next spring, it'll be old enough to drink. Um, and where are you, what are you seeing in the cycle of what customers are doing with Active Directory right now? I know we all know the common uninformed, frankly, wisdom is that Active Directory is old and needs to go away. If it needs to go away if you look at all the Okta, if you read any of the Okta advertisements, whatever. But the reality is that it's more important than ever because as it's solved as, as a basis for hybrid identity, what are companies doing right now? What kind of projects are you being engaged in? What, what are people, are they trying to clean up Active Directory? They increase the security? What are they trying to do to it? Yeah, I would say we we have we continue to see a lot of traditional on-prem AD projects. You know, despite what the marketing people might tell you about you know where it is in its uh, uh, life cycle, um, most of the projects we see are very security-driven these days, um, and many of those are you know kind of post-incident, post-breach type projects. Mm -hmm. um, inevitably, money comes out of the woodwork once something's happened. Um, we'd obviously rather do that same work before that happens, but, uh, sometimes that's a little bit of harder, uh, harder sell, but, um, most of it is, is, uh, is security and hardening type work. You know, we continue to, you know, obviously there's M and A type things, with consolidations and, and that sort of thing. Um, we've had a number of people looking to greenfield ad they've come to this decision that they've had this thing for 20 years and they want to start over um we usually try and uh, talk folks out of that because that's just enormously expensive in my experience is that nobody actually ever finishes it so they they end up with n plus one when they're done with uh done with the project because it turns out it's really really hard to get rid of this thing you've had for 20 years um, like nobody but, ever uh, an AD migration, right? Yeah, exactly. Have to always stay behind. AD migration project. Um, so, but th that question comes up a lot lately. Um, and it, you know, I try to boil it down to, okay, why do you want to do this? And can we fix what you have now? I would agree that the, the, the focus is on hardening and security, what people, or sorry, what companies already have. 
um, getting all the crap out that has been built throughout the years or uh, stuff that has been designed, uh, implemented years ago and needs to be updated, reconfigured, whatever, due to changes in time and visions and security matters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so like the, the, the old days where you would be designing ADs uh, every single week, uh, no, that's not happening anymore. I was even surprised. I, th I don't recall if it was just after the holidays or before the holidays, but somebody called me, <laughs> can you help us design a new AD with ADFS and PKI? And basically every single thing he mentioned was on-prem. And I was like, holy crap, this, it still exists. And <laughs> after asking them, it was about um, a divesture where a company was being separated and instead of cutting a part of the, the, the environment, they basically, well, we'll build a new one and migrate probably all the, the uh, machines, users, all that stuff away. Uh, but that I ha seriously haven't heard a, a, a similar scenario for years besides the one that I just was contacted about. But yeah, everything is around security, hardening, fixing, repolishing, whatever. Mm -hmm. So... For us, there's a lot of investment in ongoing security hardening in the traditional, like on-prem legacy um, AD space. I, you know, all the things that people have been talking about, we're making investments in. I honestly <clears throat> resent the fact that I have to put in all these really complicated protections to defend myself against lateral movement and privilege escalation attacks. Um, that just sucks. Um, it's it's the way of things. There's nothing you can do about it, but it really sucks to be burdened with that. Um, the thing. So my boss has been asking me, like, when are we getting off of AD? When are we getting off of AD? And I look at my 500,000 domain join workstations. I'm like, could be a while. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and you know, and there's like 50,000 domain join servers and there's a gazillion things. But honestly, I, we have answers for the workstations, right? They can go to modern management. They, they could all be Azure AD joined. That's a pivot that's possible. The servers are... A, a different thing, but there's a lot of investments we're making to try and uh, modernize our applications and use serverless cloud technologies. So that will probably start to shrink. I think the thing that is most interesting for me in this space is how do we, how do I provision uh, to pivot my identity provisioning um, mechanism to be from being on-prem centric to being cloud centric? Because my thought is, if I want to treat Active Directory. Um, as something I can eventually prune off. It has to be a spoke and not the hub, which right. means that I need to, to be cloud-centric in terms of where all of my identity provisioning happens. I don't think Microsoft has really given us the technology to do that yet. Um, you just can't accommodate all the use cases. Oh, workday inbound provisioning is great. That's a nice step. I only do employees through that. I don't do contractors and I don't do service accounts and all that other stuff. And I need answers for all of those things. So, um, to me, that is uh, pr pivoting your provisioning workload is actually uh, one of the biggest things that you have to think about in terms of how you will eventually divest of your Active Directory environment. Yeah, it's almost like um, I, do, I do describe it as the center of gravity. You know, the center of gravity for provisioning, the center of gravity for authentication. We're seeing authentication starting to move in that direction, but provisioning is another is another matter entirely. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.